This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. If you haven't been here before, I am, of course, your host, Logan Anderson, and we bring you sports media people to tell stories and give tips on self-improvement and Today, I think we have a guest who's going to be able to fill up both of those categories in abundance. We are joined by John Nicholson. He is the director of the Newhouse Sports Media Center at Syracuse University. He's basically the guru of sports media for one of the one of the broadcast factories that pumps out tons of excellent sportscasters each and every year. John, how are you doing today? Just fine, thank you very much. And by the way, optimism is always a good thing, Logan. To call me a guru, I think, is only about overstepping it by three or four degrees or three or four hundred degrees. And no, we're not a factory. We're a school. Some people see us as a factory, but uh, we do a little bit more than that. We don't actually turn out widgets or anything. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about just right away. We'll get the, the elephant in the room, so to speak, out in front and there is a perception around just people that I've talked to, because I really haven't met very many Syracuse people. I live in South Dakota. There's not a whole lot of them that end up out here. But some of the people, there's a perception that when you come out of Syracuse, there's a little bit of entitlement, and I'm sure that that's potentially out of jealousy or out of, for whatever reason, but have you noticed any of that? And how would you answer that to someone who said that that was a thing? I think it's fair to say that there are some people who feel that our graduates uh, have a sense of entitlement. I don't think that's the case. Uh, maybe with rare exception, there might be one or two. Most of the students who've come through the program uh, while I have been here, which is almost 20 years now, as a professor at the Newhouse School, come with the idea that uh, they're going to work hard with a bunch of very talented people and try to get good. I mean, they come in with a certain amount of self-confidence. You and I both know, being in the business, uh, me for almost 50 years, if you haven't got self-confidence, you're not going to get very far. But there's a great deal of difference between that and arrogance and entitlement. I think uh, I could show you a list of people that have gone to places such as South Dakota and Billings, Montana, and West Texas and all over the country starting out. Not a lot of our people wind up in smaller markets, but I would say more than half of our people start in smaller markets. Take, for example, um, Anish Shroff, who started out in Yakima, Washington, and, of course, now has been with ESPN for a number of years. They go out there, they work hard, they prove themselves, and they move up. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get out of the business, and once in a while, they will stay in a small place and find this is a great home to be. But to, to your question about entitlement, no, I don't think our, our fellows feel entitlement. I wouldn't say jealousy. Look, there are a whole lot of people who are alums of Syracuse University, most of them of the Newhouse School, who have been successful in sports media and not just in broadcasting. But there are a whole lot more who've gone to school somewhere else or haven't gone to college at all. We have a pretty good representation, but I don't think we're all that full of ourselves. So what is it that makes the Newhouse School so good? What is it that is able... Is it just the admission standards of the people you take? How do you get so many high-caliber and nationally-known names to come out of Syracuse? Well, we have an excellent reputation, I think, because we've had a whole lot of very good students over a whole lot of decades. 
when you talk specifically about sports, and I wouldn't limit the excellence to our students in sports. We have many in news and all media as well, as well as public relations, advertising, etc. But we're talking sports here, and the fact is it always goes back to Marty Glickman, who graduated in 1939 and was one of the first great play-by-play people, also one of the great mentors and teachers of people who came after him. Not to mention an Olympian, and the whole story of Marty in the Berlin Olympics is something else, too, that you ought to look into and your listeners ought to look into if they're not familiar with it already. But you go back to Marty, and Marty, he was here. Marv Albert knew who he was. Dick Stockton knew who he was. Those people said, well, Marty's at Syracuse. Maybe we should go to Syracuse. And then it passes on down. Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, Beth Mowens, to today's people such as Jason Benetti and Carter Blackburn, my cousins, and many, many more. Once you have established that good people have come to a place and moved up and been successful in an industry, there's a tendency to think, well, there must be something magic there. What's magic here, if anything, and I think magic, again, would be a terrible overstatement, we have very motivated young men and women, talented, who come in here and push hard. I always say run with a fast pack. And they push each other to be good, because obviously you and I know there are a lot more than two jobs in the business, and then they go forward. Now, people fall out along the way as well. We also have a great network of alumni in the business who remember when they were students that people then in the business would come back and help them out, and so they then reach back and they pass it on. They pass it forward, so to speak. And then we also have pretty good faculty, I think, in spite of the fact that I'm one of us. We have people who encourage good writing, good announcing, good reporting, good interviewing in every field. And our sports people apply that to the specialty of sports media. But we are really more about doing all that stuff well in any medium here. We're not a sports factory. We do have the reputation. In fact, we had the people from the NBA Players Association here just ending today with the annual Sportscaster U event that Matt Park runs in, uh, in collaboration with the Players Association. But, yeah, we call that Sportscaster U because, well, it's a good name. But we're a lot more than Sportscaster U. It's, it's a matter of really good students, really good alums, and having a good reputation. Look, if, if you are a grad of the Newhouse School, presumably, and you're into sports, you have a good demo. That will get you through the door. But once you get through the door, if you can't perform, you're going right back out the door. So what are some of the characteristics you've been at your job as a professor or faculty member? I, I lost what your exact title was besides the director of the Newhouse School. I don't want to disrespect you by calling you the wrong thing. But what are the characteristics of some of the, the people who have advanced far in the industry that have kind of been consistent as far as things that have helped them succeed? Work ethic, work ethic, work ethic, work ethic. I could say it 20 times and probably not say it often enough. You don't have to be a genius to be good at this, although I think all the people who have been successful are reasonably intelligent. Some are very, very intelligent. But the fact of the matter is you have to want it. A lot of people use the word passion. I don't toss that around a whole lot. But it's people who know relatively early on in life, I'm pretty sure this is what I want to do. Now, some of those students come here and discover, wow, it's more work than I thought. They then don't do it. 
But the people who come here and discover, as I'm sure you have, because you're pretty good at this, they discover that they enjoy the work, that the process is fun. That is what makes them successful, because they work a little harder, they work a little longer, they listen a little bit better. Everybody who comes back here and talks to our students, whether you're talking about just in the past year, Marv Albert, Dick Stockton, Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, all those names, the same thing that they say when the students ask them, well, what's the secret to success? They say in one set of words or another, there's no secret. You work hard all the time. You prepare. And that will lead to success more often than anything else. On the flip side of that, what are there's so many talented people that come through that I'm sure there's a lot of them, as you mentioned, that fall off the wayside. What are some of the things that derail careers of talented people who have work ethic that for whatever reason just don't make it that you've witnessed throughout your career? There are some people uh, who don't quite have that talent. But if you're going to define it as talented people with work ethic, I submit to you that almost all of them will be successful at some pretty reasonable level. I'm talking about at least major market radio, television, newspaper, magazines, etc., etc., etc. What derails students in spite of intelligence and talent very often is the thought that I'm a sports fan, so I should be a sports reporter. I should be a sports anchor. I should be a sports writer. And there is a difference between being a fan and being a reporter, as you know, because you do it. So when you get in there and discover, yeah, well, I, I still love the sport or sports. I still secretly root for some players or teams. But you really can't do that as a sports reporter unless you are what they now have as in-house reporters at professional teams and stuff like that. That will derail them. They suddenly realize, oh, man, this is work. This is work, and it's not work that I enjoy. So it's not necessarily that they have no work ethic. Very often they'll have a great work ethic at doing something else. But it ruins their idea of a love for sports very often, too, because they find out too much about what goes on behind the scenes, and it makes them unhappy. So the difference between a fan and a reporter, I think, is probably the number one thing that gets people to say, you know what, I'm going to keep being a fan, and I'm going to do something else for a living. Okay, so now let's move on, and let's talk about something that I'm sure you know very well, you. we like to. One of the things I like to ask everybody when they come on this podcast is what your initial break, either out of school or maybe you were working somewhere else, what got you into uh, the sportscasting industry? And for you, I'm going to say what got you into the just news and media industry in general because you started off doing many years of local news. What was your break into the media? I grew up uh, in suburban New York, in Bergen County, New Jersey. I was born in Queens, and we moved over to Jersey when I was five. As a New York Giants fan, went to the last Giants home game in the Polo Grounds, which, by the way, we lost to the Pirates 9-1, to and Bob Skinner hit it inside the park home run. My heart has followed the Giants to San Francisco, and as you can imagine, the last few years have been really good for me. But looking around, listening to people like Marty Glickman, when I was a kid, Marty Glickman and Gussie Moran, <laughs> and then when I got out of college listening to Marv Albert, who's only a couple of years older than I am and sometimes is, is, seems younger, I thought, well, that would be fun to do. But while I was at Syracuse, 
I realized that it was, one, a lot of work, and two, there were a lot of people who were more talented at it, I thought, than I was. For instance, the voice of the Syracuse Orange football and basketball in my year at SU, 1968, was Len Berman. Well, Len's pretty good. So when you see a guy like that, you think, boy, I'm, I'm not as good as that. I think I'll do something else. But I wound up majoring in television and radio, and a friend of mine, somebody that uh, I'd, I'd gotten to know, said, what do you want to do? I thought I was going to Vietnam, you know, and it turned out I, I didn't wind up being drafted. But uh, I said, well, I'd, I'd like to be on TV or radio, and being patient with me, he sent me to a few people. I got a job as a desk assistant carrying copy for ABC Radio News, and that was really the big break for me because I worked with some of the greatest professionals in the business. I looked over their shoulders and I learned how to write and how to edit tape and how to do interviews. I'd learned some of that in college, but working with these big-time people, these editors, these producers, and having them be kind enough to critique my stuff, that was really a big break for me. And then my second big break was I answered an ad for a job out in the middle of nowhere, I thought, Pittsburgh, Kansas. That's Pittsburgh without an H, home of the fighting gorillas. And wound up getting a job on the air doing radio where I could make my mistakes. So those were the two big breaks that got me going. And then after that, uh, did more radio, eventually TV. My fraternity brother, believe it or not, Steve Croft of 60 Minutes, got me an interview with a job uh, here in Syracuse. They hired me to do TV. I got fired eventually for insubordination. Steve was then in Jacksonville with Post Newsweek, and he got me another interview, and I got that job. Eventually, after 26 years of doing news in local television, uh, my friend Dennis Denninger, who was then a coordinating producer with uh, ESPN, called me and said, I'm looking for a guy who knows sports but is not a, quote, sports guy to host a show for us at ESPN, and I thought of you. And that was the Oshkosh Fly-In in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I got the job, and that led me to more than 20 years of interesting little things as a freelance talent working for ESPN. That was my break into, quote, sports. We talked a little bit in this in our conversation beforehand about what some of those interesting little things were, and I was very interested in a lot of them. You said you covered dog shows and aviation shows and the running of the bulls. Give us just some stories from your career about unique things that happened covering those already unique events. Well, I was the original host of the Incredible Dog Challenge which uh, I think is, is still on NBC. I haven't watched it lately. There have been four or five hosts since me. And this is a thing where you have dogs running around doing agility drills and uh, long jumping into pools and all kinds of stuff like that. And I thought, well, this is really good for a person with a background in news because I had been everything from an investigative reporter running an I-team to being a feature reporter and pretty much everything in between. Well, this is just kind of feature reporting and something that was sort of sports. Sports for dogs and their handlers. And so what I discovered when we went to these places, and we traveled all across the country doing these shows, was that when you show up at the Incredible Dog Challenge with an ESPN microphone and a camera, people will do almost anything for you. You want us to stand over here? Okay, you want the dog to stand on her head? Okay, we'll do that. It was fabulous. So then we went from place to place to place for about three years, went to St. Louis to Purina Farms, did that and uh, had a wonderful time and met all these wonderful people who were completely unimpressed with themselves. They were far more impressed with their dogs. And the dogs were very nice, and I never got bitten. So there was that. 
a guy called up um, sometime, I guess, around that same time. It was in the uh, mid-1990s and said, hey, have you ever been to Pamplona? I said, you mean where they had the running of the Bulls? He said, uh, I do. I said, no, I have not. Well, how'd you like to host it? Does it pay? Yeah. So the next thing you know, I'm flying over to Pamplona with Bruce Connell and Bobby Feller, one of the great producers at ESPN over the years, also a Syracuse grad. Bruce Connell, who's the son of Scotty Connell, longtime NBC Sports, and then eventually uh, one of the starting guys at ESPN. And Deb Kaufman, who is a very talented person who did not go to Syracuse, but is married to a guy from Syracuse, a coordinating producer also for ESPN, Ed Placey. And Deb and I wearing these ridiculous all-white outfits with red bandanas around our necks because the producers insisted that would be the right way to go, called the running of the bulls. Now, I could give you all the Spanish words that I know pretty quickly. Si. Porque no hablo español muy bien. Un poquito. That's okay, because the bulls didn't talk much anyhow, so whatever language it was, eh. And we actually would get, the, each bull had a number, believe it or not. We knew virtually nothing about the running of the bulls, by the way, but we prepped and we knew everything there was to know by the time we got there. And what we discovered was that each bull indeed had a number. And so we had a starting lineup, which we would announce before the running of the bulls, and the name of each bull and what the name meant. And now we're thinking, okay, now we're going to do the play-by-play, blow-by-blow, literally, gore-by-gore. And here they come running through the center of uh, Pamplona. And we suddenly realized, right after they started, there's no way in the world we can possibly identify any of these bulls. (laughs) Well, here they come. Ooh, that looks like that hurts. Wow, what a slide into the wall that was. Yes, the hamburger wall over there. They call it the Wall of Hamburger. Well, we we kind of made it up as we went along. And it was wildly popular. People told me that, um, because it's on a 7.30 in the morning in Pamplona, which is like 10.30 at night in Los Angeles, and 1.30 in the morning in New York, that people were watching this live on ESPN2 in bars across the country. I got more friends of mine telling me they'd seen me on that than in all my years of anchoring the news in various places. So those were a couple of things uh, that we did, and then there was a certain amount of uh, celebration that went on. I think the, the most fun... Let me interject real quick. Okay. Where were you physically located when you're covering the running of the Bulls? Were you above it on the top of a building? I'm assuming you're not down in the middle of everything. How does that set up? Because that's kind of a long street. Do you have to move as the thing goes on? There, there is a, that's a very good assumption on your part. And no, because uh, Spanish television has the entire course wired with cameras, and we just tapped into that. We were on a riser um, with, with our truck just outside the entrance to the bullring, which is where it ends. It's just about a half-mile run, mostly uphill, and then straight through the brick streets of Pamplona. So we were on a riser just above, and they would run into the stadium just beyond us. But we could see it all right from the start on all the monitors, and all we had to do was um, listen and comment. What was the environment in Pamplona like after the event. That's uh, obviously one of the more well-known events in the world. Just what was it like taking in that culture and that experience after you were done with the actual broadcast? It was tranquil, as they say, very tranquil. When it was over, 
And after the people were done running around uh, the bull ring and having the people in charge of getting the bulls out of the ring and into the uh, stalls were done pretending that they were some sort of toreros, then we would all go off and have some coffee and then eventually uh, probably a glass of wine or two, sit in the plaza. Everybody was quiet. People would go and sleep for an hour or two. The shops would open and people would actually work from like 10 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon and then take a siesta or something like that. But the running of the bulls is at 8 a.m. local time, and it's over at 8.30. When the partying goes on is at night, after it gets dark, people go out to eat there. We went into a restaurant one night. We had a reservation at 11 p.m. for dinner. We were the first people in the restaurant. So they eat late, often stay up all night, often have a few beverages or a few more beverages. You're not supposed to run with the bulls when you are inebriated, but, of course, some people do. <laughs> and it gets really crazy in the middle of the night. The streets are jam-packed. The people are singing and so forth. Ole, ole, ole. I don't know what that was all about, but they were singing that all the time. And also because uh, the big bike race was going on at the same time, the Tour de France. Um, there was a lot of excitement about, I uh, forget who the first year we were there, but there was a, a very good Spanish writer who was among the leaders, and they were all singing his praises throughout. And the people are just, they're, they're back-to-back, belly-to-belly. One of the things they do over there is they have fountains that are probably 20, 25 feet high, and the Australians like to climb to the top of the fountain and dive off into their friends' arms. With luck, the friends catch them. <laughs> the whole time, though, what's amazing is I never saw... I never heard a cross word. Whenever there's a, just the slightest kind of uh, disturbance, people will turn and say that word, tranquillo, and people go, yeah, yeah, we're here to have fun. We're not here to fight. It was remarkable. It was, I've never been to a party like it, and I went there for uh, five years in a row covering a free ESPN. Never saw a fight. Never saw anybody badly hurt except during the running when a couple of people got gored, which is not so much fun. So what are some other unique events that you covered in your time there before we move on? I went, as I said before, the, the first thing I did was go to Oshkosh. And the first year in Oshkosh, this is the, the largest gathering of people who love airplanes in the world, as far as I know. You get as many as, as three-quarters of a million people in this little town in Wisconsin uh, at, at a, what used to be a private airport. There, Well, it is a private airport now. Uh, and they come there, and they, they bring the planes that they have built. It's really a started as a home builder's convention. But then you get these military planes, and you get the Blue Angels sometimes, or the Snowbirds from Canada, all these remarkable things, anything in aviation that you can imagine. I met movie stars there. I, I met um, astronauts there, and some of the greatest flyers in the world, many of whom became my friends because I was there for a lot of years. And the big deal was one year I was out also, I, was covering, I covered the Reno Air Races at the time, and then one year or two years we had the uh, Phoenix Air Races. So I ran into a friend of mine named Gene Soucy, everybody calls him Gino, and he has what is a, a biplane called uh, a showcat. I guess actually an agricat, but he calls it a showcat, of course. And his longtime friend and companion, Teresa, would walk on the wing. So we're out there in Phoenix, and uh, I noticed that there was some guy going up on Gino's wing to take a flight. I said, who's that? He said, that's a guy from a local TV station. I said, well, Gino, you never asked me if I could go on the wing. So you want to? What am I going to say now? Yeah, sure. So the next summer in Oshkosh, I climbed up on top of Gino's wing, 
and they strapped me, and I did not walk. I just stood. <laughs> and we took off and flew around the field a few times and dove, and um, I pretended I was, actually, I was trying to talk, but the wind was blowing so hard that uh, <laughs> you couldn't hear me anyway, even though I was mic'd up. The best advice I got from Teresa was keep your mouth closed. <laughs> Most of the time, don't smile. I said, yeah. She says, yeah, you don't want a mouthful of bugs. That's what you get up there. It's not all that romantic. So I have all these pictures of me and this experience of flying around on top of the wing of a biplane. And people say, did you do that? And I said, yeah. Were you scared? Mm, no, now that I think about it, why not? And I said, because Gino's got a million bucks on that airplane. I don't think he's going to crash it just to kill me. <laughs> and he didn't. He was great. I think that's probably the most fun and uh, exciting experience that I had in all those years covering strange things. So what made you decide to leave news and sports coverage and get into education? You started in the mid-90s. You've been there since. I'm assuming that means you like it. You're not supposed to jump to conclusions in an interview, but obviously if you do it that long, it's probably been positive. What made you want to get into it, and what's been fulfilling about it? Well, I really like the funny hat and the gown that you have to wear at commencement. <laughs> No, actually, I've never never worn those things um, at commencement, although I did have to wear it once when I got to be the announcer at uh, Convocation the day before. Uh, when I was a news guy for many, many years in local TV stations, I am a stickler for grammar. I am a stickler for good writing. And so I'll probably say something really dumb as I'm talking to you, and people will say, well, that's not very grammatical, pal. In any event, uh, the people I worked with would say to me, you want to be teaching. I think what they meant was get out of our newsroom and go teach somewhere. And why don't you go teach? And I said, well, I don't know if I could. You know, I barely graduated from college, to be honest with you. Um, so I had the opportunity when I came back to Syracuse in 1988 to be the main anchor at the local NBC station here to teach one course at my alma mater, Syracuse University, because my former chief of photography for my first time at Syracuse was now the director of the broadcast journalism department. And I found that I liked it quite a lot. And I did it just one class a year for a couple of years. I eventually uh, left the station in Syracuse, not entirely through my own accord, spent a year in Houston working for an all-news station down there. And while I was there, was freelancing for ESPN. Most of the first 10 years I was teaching here at Syracuse, I was also freelancing on shows for ESPN. My schedule was such that I could fly out of Syracuse on Friday morning and get to wherever the venue was and then be back on Monday or Monday afternoon to teach a class. In fact, once I was doing a dog challenge show on Australia, and I flew out, I think, to Sydney on Wednesday morning and got back to Syracuse on Sunday night, having done a two-day event in Sydney. It was really a, a nice thing to do. So the, back to the point at hand, I discovered that when you work with young men and women who are pretty bright and are motivated, it's extremely rewarding to watch them get better. The money's not bad. It's, it's not great, but uh, it's, you know, it, it's fine. But that really was never why I did it. I just really liked seeing these people light up and become better writers and better reporters. And in many cases now, they have gone on to far greater success in the business than I ever did. I mean, I got to a few major markets along the way, and I'm very proud of the career that I had as a broadcaster in news. But I've watched these people go on, and they will come back and say, 
you had something to do with this. Well, they'll say nicer things to that, but that's as much as I'm going to say. And it's, it's just incredibly rewarding to think that you had anything to do with helping good people be successful. And that's what it's about. That's, I, I still love to do it to this uh, moment. I'm, I'm doing it for one more year, and then I'm going into retirement from teaching. Maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I can apply for a job with you. <laughs> but that's it. It's, it's the, the pleasure of working with smart, motivated young men and women. You mentioned something before you got into the teaching, and I'm going to get back into that a little bit later, but since we're in a podcast format and I can bounce all over the place without any consequences, <laughs> I'm just going to do it. You mentioned earlier in the show that you were removed from a job, not on your own accord, and then you just said your last one in Syracuse, maybe it wasn't necessarily your plan to initially leave there on your own terms. How difficult is it to rebound after getting fired or losing a rights battle, or what are the keys to doing that? Fortunately, I haven't had to learn that yet, but it's something that I found interesting. It's a badge of honor, my friend. That's, uh, there's, people told me many, many years ago, if you've never been fired in this business, you haven't been in this business very long. Uh, and, and let's be honest, I've only been fired twice in all these years, and I'm coming up on 50 years as a broadcaster. And I still do some radio broadcasting from time to time. So I count that career as the clock's still ticking on it. But I was fired both times from the same station, both times for insubordination. Uh, and both times because uh, I felt that they wanted me to do stuff well, the first time they wanted me to do something that was a station promotion and pass it off as news. Now, everybody does that these days, but nobody did that back in 1976. So that was the first thing, and I felt it was more important to be what I felt was ethical than to keep the job. But that was horrible. It was horrible because um, I did not have another opportunity, because a lot of people won't hire you when they find out that you've been fired. And then uh, I had two young kids at the time. I was divorced at the time. And uh, it was, it was a kind of a struggle. But then, as I mentioned, my friend Steve Croft got me to be an interviewed by his boss down in Jacksonville, who loved the reason I was fired and hired me immediately. You have to, the, the, if there's a secret to it, as you suggest, take a deep breath, take a look around, because when this happens to you, you find out who your friends are for sure. If you're a TV news reporter, you're a TV anchor man, you're anybody who's in the public eye, a lot of people say they are your friends because you're on TV. And if you don't understand that all the time, you're in for a big surprise when the whole thing falls apart. When it does fall apart, I knew that. I had a pretty good idea who my true friends were both times. Turned out I was right with most of them, and they saw me through. And then what you do is if you think you have talent and you think you still love what it is that you do, you just contact everybody and anybody you can think of and say, I'm looking, can you help, do you have anything, is there anybody I can talk to? And that's how I got started really doing shows for ESPN because the second time that I got fired from Channel 3 in Syracuse and before I went to Houston, I contacted my friend Dennis and he said, I've got this show, I think you'd be good for it. And that opened the door to several hundred shows that I did over the years for ESPN. You just, you have to, you know, I prayed a lot. (laughs) And we all know that God answers all prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. And I relied on people. Uh, My my final wife, uh, we're in our 40th year together now. Thank God I had her the second time that I was out. And she helped to carry me through. 
she had faith in me, and so I had faith in myself. Now, my advice is not, well, if this happens to you and you don't have somebody that you, you care about and cares about you, you rush out and get somebody. It probably doesn't work. But you always, I think, have people you can rely on. And the best lesson, I think, about that is those people step up for you. Those people give you faith. If they have faith in you, yeah, why can't you have faith in yourself? I was going to say, that, that's that old bit about you know, the door closes and the window opens. It's, it's what led me into pursuing the possibility of teaching in addition to broadcasting, and it turned out I've had almost 20 years of that, and I've loved every minute of it. Did you ever get a chance, maybe not necessarily in a mean-spirited way, but to say, how do you like me now, and make sure that the person, people who got rid of you saw how successful you ended up going on to be? No. Nah. Uh, I, may, I may have thought that once or twice, I guess. <laughs> But anger is, uh, that sort of stuff is really a waste of time, and we get angry. The older I get, the less angry I get most of the time. But it's no skin off their nose. It, it really doesn't matter. People don't always fire you for personal reasons, in spite of the fact that you're the one being fired, so how else can you take it? They'll tell you it's just business, and sometimes it is. But... There's no great satisfaction in saying, well, look at me now. You see, I got a better job than I had working with you people. I know there's a natural tendency to want to feel that way, but the truth of the matter is, I think, they don't care anyhow. So you carry that, you know, there's this, this song that Don Henley did, uh, you, you, keep par- you keep carrying all that anger, it'll eat you up inside. You know, heart of the matter, you can look it up. It's, um, it's something you just have to get past. And thank God the people who cared for me helped me understand that little by little. So we talked before we recorded this podcast that you didn't actually teach Bob Costas or Marv Albert, probably right now the two premier most famous Syracuse alum out there right now, but you have long-term relationships, especially with Bob Costas. Give us some stories that show who Bob Costas is when the mic's turned off and what makes him successful? I first met Bob probably uh, in 1973, I would think, when I was a, a reporter and uh, eventually weekend anchor at Channel 3 in Syracuse, and he was still a student at Syracuse. And if I recall it correctly, either Herb Weisbaum, who went on to be a correspondent for CBS and now is a very successful consumer reporter in Seattle, uh, and or Dave Cohen, who was a one-time voice of the Yankees and one of the best broadcasters I know and one of Bob's best friends. They even shared a birthday. One of those guys were both brought Bob by uh, to fill in uh, as, as a part-time guy, and, and that's when I met him. And he was clever, and he was funny, and he was very young, and he was confident without being a jerk about it. And he filled in, uh, he tells stories on himself, and I'm not going to tell any of those things because uh, he's told them a hundred times, and they're all very funny. But I will tell you a story about the kind of guy that Bob is. Fast forward a few years. So when we worked together in Syracuse, we would sometimes go out for a pizza, and we'd sometimes hang out or go to a ball game and stuff like that. Eventually, he left and became the voice of the spirits of St. Louis, and eventually I went through Jacksonville and became a main anchor at the CBS station in Tampa. I jumped from there to an independent station in Tampa where the production crew who did our newscasts also was the production crew for NFL coverage for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Buccaneers, easy for me to say. And Bob, it turned out, 
was this was before I think that he signed with NBC. He was doing some freelance play-by-play for CBS, as I recall. In any event, he called a game at Tampa Stadium. So now it's Monday night, the night after that, and I'm doing the news at 10 o'clock on WTOG. And the guys before the show are telling me about this guy they'd worked with the day before during the football game. And I pretend that I didn't know who it was. They said, yeah. I said, well, what, what was he like? Oh, he was great. Because we'd be up there in the, in the booth, and he would say, if I sit like this, does that work for you? What can I do to help you? He, he was considerate. He learned all our names. He was considerate of all of us. He couldn't have been at the end. He thanked every one of us. I said, really? What was that guy's name? He said, oh, Bob Costas. Great guy. Bob is the kind of guy that when he is sitting after some event at a table with a bunch of people he knows, with a bunch of so-called bigwigs and a bunch of students, will spend the most time there with the students. He is just generous to a fault. And that was the first time I heard from other people who did not know that I knew him what a great guy he was. And I've heard that story since. I watched him operate some years later. I was uh, visiting in New York when he used to do the NFL, game, the NFL uh, pregame show on NBC. Same thing with the crew there. And then go out afterwards and have a beverage with everybody else afterwards. Just a regular down-to-worth guy. Over the years, Bob has become wildly successful, one of the best-known names in the business, obviously but has never lost touch with some of his oldest friends, me, Coney Island Dave, and the recently departed Joel Marinas, and Herb Weisbaum, and a few other people whom he met in Syracuse. He is just that kind of a down-to-earth guy. There's nothing better that I could say about him, a good a guy as I know, for all his talent. You would think he might get a giant head. Nah, not really. No way. So Marv, I've only, as I told you earlier, I have idolized Marv as a fan since I was 21 years old and carrying copy at ABC Radio in New York and listening to him calling the Rangers and the Knicks on the radio. And I never met Marv, never had the opportunity to meet Marv until I think three years ago this summer when we gave the first Newhouse Sports Media Center Marty Glickman Award for Leadership in Sports Media to Bob. And who was the most obvious guy to present it to Bob since Marty's no longer with us? Well, Marv. So we got in touch with Marv, and he was more than happy to do it. And the next year, we gave the award to Marv, and of course, Bob presented it to him. But Marv has become certainly a professional friend. We don't hang out together and uh, you know, have drinks or anything like that. But he could not be nicer for a, a guy who has reached his level of success. You know how you hear people talk about, have my people, have your people call my people. And so when I was setting up stuff with Marv first for Costas' award and then for Marv's own award, and then bringing Marv up here to uh, talk to our students in a big forum, he has no people to call. You call him. And I said, well, you don't have people. He said, why would I have people? That's the kind of guy that Marv is. Always had, just a couple of times when he's busy as all get out up until the end of the semifinals last week, calling the NBA games. A couple of guys 
um, who are in talk radio, more recent graduates, contacted me and said, could you possibly ask Marv, would he maybe give me 15 minutes on my radio show? We're talking about medium, small markets. So I sent Marv an email. He said, geez, I'm awfully busy, but sure, let me see what I can do. And he did those radio pickups when he wasn't doing them for a lot of other places, just because out of the goodness of his heart and his loyalty also to Syracuse alums. So uh, I, I could not be more pleased to have gotten to know Marv a little bit. So the last podcast that I did was with Dave Gorin, another Syracuse alum. He's the National Sports Media Association director, and he t- said that at Syracuse, you're not really on your way until you've gotten chewed out by Jim Beheim over something something small. <laughs> is, is that something that you talk to him and that you set up and say, hey, I want you to chew out my students to make sure that they get a thick skin, or is that just something that happens organically? <laughs> there's, there's no need to set that up. <laughs> now, I have known Jim uh, since I was a junior in college, and he was a first-year graduate student. Again, when I was a freshman, he was a junior, and he and his roommate, Dave Bing, were the leaders of the basketball team. Dave Bing, to this moment, certainly the best basketball player ever for Syracuse, one of the best players I've ever seen in person. And Jim, I just kind of idolized Jim because he was this gawky-looking guy with glasses who looked completely unathletic, and they would double and triple team Dave at the end of the game. Jim would get the ball and hit the shot to win but completely unimpressed with himself. Well, it turns out the next year he's my RA, my <laughs> resident advisor. He quarterbacked my dormitory's floor football team to the all-university championship. He would play cards with us. We didn't play for money, strangely enough. And he would always win the championships, one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet in your life. Brilliant guy, has two master's degrees, and does not suffer fools gladly. But if you ask him a good question, by golly, he will answer with a good answer. He is a prickly sometimes. He's never been prickly with me, but we've known each other for a very long time. We talked about this. In fact, one of these days, uh, I'm, I'm working on having him sit in front of an auditorium full of sports-oriented students to talk about this. And he's agreed to do it. He's just to figure out when it's going to be. But no, you, you, don't, you don't have to set that up with Jim. Here's the thing, and I think it's a great lesson for all these people. Ask a good question, and he may give you the, the hard look at first, but then he'll give you a good answer. But if you ask him, why didn't you go to the man-to-man there at the end, he'd look at you like, did you just get off a bus from somewhere? Why are you asking? We don't play man-to-man. What is wrong with you? And then sometimes he'll say, they teach you to ask questions like that at Newhouse? <laughs> Yeah, but you're right. I mean, you have to have a thick skin. Jim contributes to that. He's also given us some of the best sound bites and most insightful things I've heard. To say that we are close friends, that's not true. We've been friendly for a very long time, and I admire and respect and like him, and sometimes I wish you to take it a little bit easier on these guys. So some, you said that he was an RA on your dorm hall. Did you ever get in trouble? Did he ever have to write you up or whatever the process was back when no. you guys were in college? No, no. We, no, we, we were a, a, a very well-behaved bunch of guys. Uh, in fact, I was the president of the dorm eventually, so I, I kind of had to behave myself. I only became president of the dorm because my roommate uh, had been on, on the dormitory council, and he had, too much things, he had too many things going on. He actually got good grades, unlike me. 
But uh, no, we we uh, we were a fun-loving bunch. Keep in mind too that uh, the drinking age in those days was 18, so you didn't get in trouble for drinking because you were 18, and you didn't drive around in cars much because you could walk. So other than that, no, there there was the, a rumor. Uh, and I think it's a true story, but it doesn't matter, that uh, one of our guys who just won letter winner of distinction a couple of years ago was a football player, dropped a bowling ball out of seventh floor window once. But that was before Jim was the IRA, and besides, he was on the third floor. <laughs> so how has the sports media industry changed from when you started to how it is now? Obviously, it's very different. What are the kind of the key elements, maybe that people don't think of, when they think of some of the changes that have happened? I don't know uh, about what people might not think of. There's some obvious things, of course. You go from when I started out, you had three TV stations in a town, or in New York City, the number one market, you had seven stations in town. and Not all of them were doing news or sports. You didn't have uh, baseball on, on TV much, although I did watch the Giants and the Yankees and the Dodgers in New York. And so then eventually what you got was cable, and then you got ESPN, of course, which was huge in, in busting the thing open. You had the Internet, and then you have the blogging and uh, the social media and so forth and so on. It's, it's hugely different. Uh, here's an example. One of our alums, Ariel Helwani, is a very accomplished MMA reporter and has been a reporter for Fox, uh, for Fox Sports. Well, apparently the other night... He reported something that the MMA uh, management people didn't like, and they kicked him out before a championship fight and told him and his colleagues they never can come back anymore. I don't see that happening many, many years ago, which leads me to this. The biggest change, I think, and, and it's much worse than it used to be, is the control of the message and the content by leagues, professional franchises and teams, collegiate uh, athletic departments and teams, the whole idea that what the fans deserve and what the public deserves is Pravda, is Vestia, Tas, and never, ever say anything negative and never, ever announce something before they say you can announce it because if you do, you will be banned. Syracuse University, as an example, is a private institution. So the university doesn't have to let any reporters in to cover anything. And the truth is that there are some reporters in this town, I suspect in many towns where the, coll the collegiate teams are the big deal, who tread lightly. They're not looking to investigate misbehavior. All they want is a game story and an interview with the guy and a soundbite and blah, 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 blah. That, to me, is the biggest change. There are a lot of people who are very good at investigative reporting and or just straightforward sports news reporting who are seen sometimes as the enemy of the people in charge of these sports franchises, departments, leagues. And these people will come in and say, well, doggone it, we need ethics, we need truth, we need good reporting, we need all that kind of stuff. The public deserves it. And I will ask them, yes, I agree, but does the public want it? I don't know if the public wants it. That's the biggest change to me. So if you, so, if you knew someone who was in a situation where uh, a 
team or entity was trying to control the message that they were allowed to say, you're, you're being too critical of our team, you need to stop that, would you suggest to them to kind of fight back and stand their ground and say, this is what I see, this is what I report, or would you say get in line and, and make your employer happy? How do you balance that? I think you always have to pick your fights. I think you don't decide that you're going to just impale yourself for the purpose of doing it. So, for instance, you have to decide, is because you're, you're right with the implication of what you're saying, that very often the management just wants to get along. The management of your TV station or newspaper or radio station very often just wants to stay on the good side of the athletic department, the pro team, etc. So they will say to you, eh, back off, I'm getting trouble, you know, I'm getting a hard time from the athletic director, or the chancellor called me and gave me a hard time. I think you have to decide how important is it to you not to be somebody who bends over and takes it. What I, because I've lost two jobs pretty much for that sort of reason twice. All right, two jobs once. That's a total of two times. And uh, there are other times when I have said, you know what, let me try to find a way to compromise here and look for work elsewhere. And that's what I would do. My advice to people, because people ask me this all the time, former students ask me this, sometimes professionals I've met ask me this. See what you can do to work with it for now. And if this is the kind of place that behaves that way, and that's not what you feel is the right thing to do, as quickly as you can, find something else where they do it correctly and jump there. Unfortunately, I think there are not as many of those places as there used to be. So, so what would you tell your students, or what have you seen your successful students do as far as work habits and ways of getting reps when, when you don't necessarily have the opportunity to get reps professionally? You have reps everywhere. You have opportunities. There are high school games almost every day of the year. There are little league games. There are people out rowing and rowing races on your nearby lakes and rivers. There are more competitions than you can shake a stick at, maybe four or five sticks. Get yourself a recording device, prep up on the teams, and go do it. In fact, get a buddy and switch off doing a commentary and analysis. Do it, do it. Do it. I teach performance to news and sports students. I make them practice at least 15 minutes a day. All kinds of different things, some of which has got nothing to do with reporting news or doing play-by-play per se. But if they only do 15 minutes, I tell them, good, but you're only doing that because I'm making you, you're probably not going to get in this business. People who are good at this practice all the time, and there are a million opportunities to do it. The trick to it, though, then, is to Listen to it yourself. See what's good. See what's not. And then get somebody who will give you an honest opinion, who knows something about it, to tell you, this is good. Do more of this. This needs to be better. Here's what you should do. But if you have people tell you, well, I don't have a chance to be a professional. It's the old thing about, well, how can I get a job if they won't hire anybody without experience? You can't get experience without a job. It's so easy to do these days with modern media and with all the devices that we have. Let's go do it. So one of the questions that I used to ask everybody on this podcast, I got away from for a little while because I just don't like doing it. It kind of seems very self-serving. But since you are in the education business, and this is about uh, improving as a broadcaster, how would you grade 
this interview on this podcast and what could be done different that people can learn from? It's very difficult to interview blowhards who go on, who go on at great length because you don't want to interrupt them because you want to be polite, but at some point uh, you might be thinking, is this guy ever going to stop? So one thing that you have to learn to do is when the guy stops to take a breath, jump right in and say, and so blah, blah, blah. He did that really well sometimes. I think you've researched uh, reasonably well, which is good. I'd probably give it, uh, again, because I told you before we discussed, when we did discuss doing this, I don't know if I have anything interesting to say. But I think that uh, you, you conducted the whole thing pretty well, and I hope it wasn't too boring. I'd probably give you a B-plus to an A-minus. I thought it was very interesting. But I'm a pretty easy grader. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. That's one of the things that I found doing this podcast is that media people talking about themselves are probably the easiest people to interview in the world. Well, you know, we all love ourselves. And, well, we should. Is there anything... <laughs> that you want to would want to say promote your school promote anything just give you a short window to talk about anything you want or anything that you'd want to get across for taking the time to do this well you know there's no need to do that because we're all entitled anyhow so we don't have to promote ourselves <laughs> uh how well, would somebody every, every year every year Every year we do uh, a major event in the spring up here. It's, it's an all-day series of panels, and we call it Sports Matters. You also can pronounce it as Sports Matters. We've also done a shorter version of it for our students uh, and alums in Los Angeles for the last couple of years. There are a lot of reasons why sports matters and coverage of sports matters. And I think sports, sometimes people see, well, that's, that's not journalism. Well, of course, not all of it is quote-quote journalism. But I think sports can be as silly as can be and can be as serious as can be. You know, let's talk about concussions. Let's talk about uh, abuse. You know, the list goes on and on and on. It's a serious part of society. It's not just, as Howard Cosell said, the toy department. It is something that is involving hundreds of millions of people, not only in this country but worldwide, and I think, like any other profession, it is an honor to be in the profession. And whether you are an in-house reporter for an NFL team, and therefore you're not going to go out and say negative things about the team, or you are an investigative reporter, you should do the best you can at it. You should not cheat your audience, cheat your employer, or cheat yourself. Obviously, that's true in every job. But the bottom line for me is, Sports matters, and that's why this job has been so rewarding for me for the last three years and why I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do so? Are you on Twitter? Do you want emails? If someone had a question or wanted to talk to you about something on this podcast. You can find me online at uh, syr.edu. My email address is jsnich one at syr.edu. We have at Newhouse Sports is our Newhouse Sports Twitter. We also have a Newhouse Sports website. So if you Google Newhouse Sports, you'll come up with our website. And if you're really, really desperate, my personal Twitter is at Prof Niche, at P R O F N I C H, curmudgeon at large. <laughs> 
All right. Once again, we're talking with John Nicholson. He is the director of Newhouse Sports Media Center at Syracuse University. And, John, thank you so much for joining us, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure, and I hope there are some people still awake. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or you can sign up for the email updates here on the website on SayTheDamnScore.com. You can follow us on iTunes or on Stitcher. Thanks for tuning in today, and remember to Say the Damn Score.